Mill City, it's a, a gift to worship with you and sing and uh, lift up the name of Jesus. And um, I love this church. I've been watching from afar. I love your pastor. Uh, for the last five years, Aaron and I and two other pastor friends have met the first Wednesday of each month um, to pray with each other, to share stories of what it's like to pastor in the respective areas of our nation, uh, to encourage one another, and so to, to be in this space here, to see what God has done over the life of your church has been a real joy, and to worship with you uh, has been a, a great gift. Uh, as Aaron said, I pastor New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. I've been the lead pastor for the last 10 years there for the last 15 years. It's a church uh, located in a place where National Geographic called the most diverse zip code in the world. And so 123 languages are spoken in the neighborhood, 75 nations represented in the congregation. It is an absolutely uh, confusing place to be in and, um, and, and beautiful as well. Um, and so I, I just I bring you greetings from our church uh, to you all here. We've been in a series, started, as Aaron said, about practicing slowing, and last week Aaron talked about Sabbath and what it means to have a rhythm, a weekly rhythm to slow down our lives. I have the great privilege this morning of talking about solitude. And if I think about solitude, if you think about solitude, solitude in many ways is just a, a mini Sabbath, a way to orient our lives to Jesus on a daily basis, finding pockets in the day to be with him. And so I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then after that share a little bit of my story because whenever I'm at a place for the first time, uh, I just want to uh, show you and demonstrate and teach and share what God has done in my life. And uh, hopefully it'll spur and, and stir hope in you. Uh, and then we're going to look at uh, what we've learned and what I've learned as it relates to solitude. But our passage is in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you have your devices or your Bible, you can follow me there or you can follow uh, on the screen there. Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Yet the news about him, that is Jesus, spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. And then we're going to especially focus on verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Lord, thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture. Thank you for the gift of worship, the gift of the body of Christ. And now I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive all you have for us this day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I became a follower of Jesus in 1999, and it was a remarkable story because I did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, I grew up in a home that was quite indifferent to the things of Christian faith. But even though my parents never went to church and we didn't go to church as a family together, from time to time my parents would send me to church with my grandparents who lived in Brooklyn, who lived one block down from me. And so I used to think, because my parents would send me often with my grandparents to church, that they were really invested in my spiritual development. It turns out, because I went to a Latino Pentecostal church that had four-hour church services, that was good childcare. 
And so they'd say, don't go to the Catholic church, go to the Pentecostal church because you can get a lot done in four hours. Uh, watch a movie, take a nap, go grocery shopping, go to that Spanish Pentecostal church. And so I would go to that church as a child and it, w- it was there where I had my first conceptions of who God was. I would learn about the holiness of God. I would learn about the power of God. I would learn in that space that Jesus had to be at least 50% Puerto Rican. I really believe that. They, they called him Jesus. They said, todo lo puedo en Cristo que me fortalece. I mean, they, he has to be. And I believe to this day that Jesus is at least 50% Puerto Rican. I just believe it. I, 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 I just do. And so I would go to this church and learn about God and hear things about God. But by the time I was 12 years old, I wasn't really getting anything out of church. I said, Mom, Dad, can I stop going to church? They said, absolutely. And it was like I was saved at that moment, saved from the church. But I found myself back at church at 17 years of age because I started dating a pastor's daughter. And how many of you know that that'll get you back into church very quickly? The pastor said... The only way you can date my daughter is if you come to church. I said, I'm there, Pastor. I, I, I will be there. I, I'll, I'll be there. And so I would go to this church and, and learn more about God and learn more about the Bible. And for a couple of years, invested everything into this relationship, my heart, my soul, my, my $24 bank account. Everything was invested in this relationship. And then the relationship came to an end one day. And I found myself so depressed. I, was, I walked one day from Queens to Brooklyn, an hour and a half journey, absolutely depressed. And I came home one day to find a surprising scene. My father was coming off of a hangover. My mother was in the kitchen cooking. My four younger siblings were at church. They were invited by someone. And it was strange because my family never went to church Someone invited my siblings to come to church, and they, they went with those, my, my family members. And, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll go to that church, the church where I used to go as a child. And so I walked two blocks down, so depressed, thinking maybe someone could pray for me. And I walk into church, and they're having a revival service. Typically, 30 people were at this church. There were about 90 to 100 people at this church. God was moving in some profound ways. I stand in the back of the church. I have a seat. And about 15 minutes after I arrive, my parents walk in, which was strange because they never went to church. And what made it even more bizarre was the way my father came in. My father came into the church with sneakers and no socks and pajama pants and a tank top and a New York Mets jacket and a New York Mets hat. Very awkward, very strange. I said, Dad, why would you come to church looking like that? And he said, the strangest thing happened when you left the house. When you left the house, I I felt like I heard two words deep down in my heart. And the two words were, follow him. And I don't know if that meant follow Rich or follow Jesus, but because Rich was going to church to see Jesus. I put two and two together. I decided to follow you. And so he follows me into this church. A few minutes after he arrives there, this preacher gets up. Puerto Rican man with alligator shoes and a matching alligator belt he had going on. And and he starts (laughs) preaching from the book of Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones, that at one point the people of God were a living army. At one point the people of God had life with God. At one point the people of God lived in obedience and in union and in communion with the living God. But one day because of sin, because of rebellion, they're sent into exile and they had become a valley of dry bones, a valley of desolate, dry, fractured, lifeless people. And God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these these bones live? Can they live again? Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. And God tells the prophet to prophesy to the bones, 
to prophesy the wind and the breath of God into the bones. And, and I came in some way from New York City to prophesy over you as well that some of you are lifeless and you're dry and you're desolate and the breath of God wants to breathe life into you today. And so Ezekiel prophesies and this man prophesies over this church and says, who wants the breath of God? And one by one, family members begin to respond. My brother responds, wants the breath of God. My sister responds, wants the breath of God. My other sister responds, my other sister responds. I respond, my mother responds, my father responds, my uncle responds, my aunt responds, a cousin responds, another cousin responds, another uncle responds, another aunt responds, another cousin responds, another cousin, lots of cousins, another cousin responds. Fifteen of us came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the life-changing knowledge of Jesus Christ. The power of God was moving so amazingly that day. Listen, if, if my dog was there, my dog would have said, can, I, can you breathe on me as well? And I had a demon-possessed chihuahua because every chihuahua is demon-possessed. This is true. This is true. His name was Milo. He had lots of problems. He would have said, can you breathe life into me as well? We're weeping at the altar. We never show that level of emotion. We get home very awkward. No one's making eye contact. <laughs> and so the only thing we knew to, what to do was to go to church the following week in between Sundays. I go down the block to see my grandfather. He used to take me to church as a child. And I say, Abuelo, I have questions. Something happened to me. I said yes to Jesus Christ. And he said to me, what you, what you have, you, you've had an encounter with Jesus. But this encounter now needs to be sustained by a life with Jesus. That was a wonderful experience you had. But it, you need to learn how to abide with Jesus. How to walk with Jesus. How to talk with Jesus. How to, how to work with him. And, and, and what, what I began to learn about was the life marked by solitude and prayer. That it was so important for life with God. What we're doing right here is so important for our life with God. I pray that you show up every Sunday worshiping, lifting your voices, praising God and praying for one another, gathering as the people of God to declare the good news that Jesus Christ is alive. We need this space, but we can't live off of this space. We need a life with God that's cultivated day in and day out, a life that learns how to dwell with God, to behold God. And so the first assignment my grandfather gave me actually was to memorize Psalm 27, which has become my life verse. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. And then verse 4, which is my life verse. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so grandpa said, you're going to have to learn how to get with Jesus. And that's what solitude is about. Getting to Jesus. Solitude is about a life that creates space to be with God. Solitude is about converting our aloneness into attentiveness, making space 
for God in our lives. And there's something that happens when we make space for God in our lives in this way. God does something subterranean. God does something deep beneath the surface of our lives. God transforms us in some ways by simply making space to be with God. And I've discovered that as oh, in my 25 years of following Jesus, that there's something that happens when I make space to be with him. And that there's something that doesn't happen when I don't do it. My wife understands. She, she knows when I'm not spending time with Jesus. She looks at me and says, you have not spent time with the Lord today. You need to get to Jesus. Because there's something about your life right now that's off. You better get to Jesus today. Because she knows that a moment and moments in his presence can do something that we cannot do for ourselves. And so I've had multiple experiences of solitude. And I think about my first really extended time of solitude as a college student. In New York, in a place called Bear Mountain, it was a Franciscan monastery. And the professor had various students to experience six to seven hours of solitude at various points in this monastery. And so he had me stand at this place where you're seeing here. It wasn't snowing that day, thankfully. It was a beautiful day. And he said, Rich, I want you to stay at this particular area for the next six to seven hours. And I want you to just be with Jesus. I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, you'll figure it out. And so there were times where I journaled and I prayed. I shared what was on my heart. There were times where I was crushing ants and trying to figure out what else is there to do. Times where I fell asleep and then woke back up and realized I had five hours ago. <laughs> but something happened in my soul that day. I felt like God kissed my soul. And something was opened up in me. And I went back to the college campus a few days later, longing for solitude. It, it was, I was like, I need to find an alone space, a solitary place. It felt like I was doing something illicit. It felt like I was doing something bad. But God had kissed my soul. And I wanted to get in a place with God. And what I've discovered is that we were made for this kind of communion. That we were made for this kind of space with God. And what I've discovered in my life, and I know you've discovered in your own life, is that we live in a very crowded world. I live in the city that never sleeps. I live in a place that's, if Queens was its own independent city, it would be the fourth largest city in the United States, after Brooklyn. It's a massive place. It's a crowded place. It's a noisy place. But this is what I had discovered. You don't have to live in New York City to recognize how crowded and noisy our world is. As a matter of fact, technology has so infringed upon our lives that we are hardly ever alone. We are constantly on our devices. Constantly in a crowded existence, in a noisy existence. And what Jesus invites us into is a life that pulls away to be with God. And Jesus understood the importance of this because he did it so regularly in his life. In our text, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, Jesus, it's, it's a normal day in the office for Jesus. He's healing the sick. He's casting demons out of people. And he realizes that everyone is coming to him. There's lots of needs. And so he decides to raise up 12 disciples to get some reinforcements. But Jesus would find out, and as you read in the scriptures, that his disciples gave him as much trouble as the demons. <laughs> and so there's so many needs around Jesus. They keep coming to him. 
He's overwhelmed in many ways by the demands on his life. It reminds me, in 2012, there was, there was Hurricane Sandy in New York that just totally ravaged our city. And it got to the point where there was so much devastation that there were only a handful of just gas stations that were available in our city. And in order to fill up the tank, we had to go on some random website where we would find out where, where the gas was going to be, where the oil was going to be delivered to the gas station. And so I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, go, oh, gas will be available at this place in Queens. And so I would get up at 4, get there at 4.15, 4.30. By the time I got there, there are already crowds of people waiting to fill up their tanks. Jesus, in the New Testament, was the only gas station in town. And everyone went to him because they realized he's the one who has the fuel. He's the one who has the life. He's the one who has the power. They came after him over and over and over again. And we know what it's like to live a nonstop existence too. We know what it's like to go from one thing to the next. We know what it's like to be, have our lives so crowded with things to do and people to see and activities to get done. But Jesus does something about it. In light of the pressures, the demands, Luke says that he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And every word in this verse is so important. I want to emphasize various words in this verse and what it means for us to cultivate a life with God in solitude. The first word I want you to pay attention to is Jesus. Jesus did this. The son of the living God, the fully human, fully God, the, the one who is in direct communion with the Father. If there's, if there's anyone who might not need a break, it should be Jesus. If there's anyone who can just keep going 24-7, it should be Jesus. But Jesus recognizes in his full humanity that he needed to step away to be sustained in his life with the Father. And with all the demands that were put before him. And if Jesus needed to do it, if I can use a good biblical phrase, how much more do you need to do it? How much more do I need to do it? Jesus steps away. The next word is often. Jesus often stepped away. I love that because I know it's the case in my life and maybe it's the case with you that we often wait until we're burned out before we go, you know what, I need to get to God. And so we're so exhausted, so frayed at the edges, and then we say, I got to get to God. But Jesus does not wait until he's exhausted. He recognizes he's, there's a regular rhythm that he has to withdraw, to get away. And you know what, it, it, is, it is better... To have five minutes of solitude daily than to have an hour or two once in a while. Jesus often is just part of his rhythm. But look at the next word, withdrew. He steps away. I love Henry Nouwen, the great author. He said that Jesus demonstrates two kinds of ministries, two kinds of spiritualities that we, both, that we need. He demonstrates a ministry of presence and a ministry of absence. 
We need a ministry of presence. There, we need to be with people. There are things that God has called us to do. We have to be involved and on mission and active. But we also need a ministry of absence, a time to step away from the demands of life, to get to the Father, to be with Jesus. And that word withdraw, uh, to withdraw, is actually, in, in, the, in the Greek language, it, it gives this connotation of, of, of taking refuge from danger. In solitude, Jesus is taking refuge from danger. The danger of what? The danger of going nonstop without having a life with God, abiding in him. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Jesus creates physical distance. And I know and I recognize that this is not always the case for all of us. We can't always create physical distance, but in many ways we, we, we can. It, ha- it can be in our bedroom. It can, it, it can be in our living room. It can be uh, finding a space. And what I've discovered about this part of the world is that there's some wonderful places to be with God. Yesterday, your pastor almost killed me because <laughs> he took me to Horse Tooth Reservoir. I've discovered there's something called 14ers. Uh, I, I, everyone was going, have you done a 14er? And I'm just like, I'm talking about like, I'm like yeah, yeah, 14er, 14 I'm like, what is a 14 I, I don't know. I felt like I did a 14er yesterday, although it's, it was like a little, a, a little trip down to the water. Aaron said, hey, we're going to go for a little, a little walk, a little, a little walk. He has his hiking shoes. I have my Nikes on. I'm not prepared for this thing. And he's skipping down the trail and... <laughs> And having a good time, and I'm so gingerly kind of like, hold up, bro, hold on, wait a second, wait a second. And then he takes me back up, and I realize that the altitude is a real thing. And like every 20 seconds, I'm like, give me a second. But what I've discovered when we got down to the water, that there was a, there was a holiness to that silence, a sacredness to that space. And I felt, what a... What a gift you have in this place in our world to get to God. What a gift you have to, to savor the spaces of creation. Jesus goes to a lonely place to pray. What's important is solitude is not simply about creating distance from other people. What solitude really is about is refusing to create distance between you and God. That's what solitude is. And so this is why I can practice solitude in the city that never sleeps. Because not about creating distance from people. It's about refusing to create distance between me and God. Jesus withdraws to a lonely place and he prays. I, I love that verse because he, he's there to commune with God. You know, if this was us, we often get to a lonely place. And we have a hard time praying. You know, if, if this was us, it might read, you know, John withdrew to a solitary place, a lonely place, and updated his Facebook status. It's like finally some freedom. <laughs> that Jane withdrew to a lonely place and, and scrolled through Instagram. Like, ah, oh, I finally have some space to catch up. That, that Rich withdrew to a lonely place and, and watched the Colorado Buffs game, which is a bad idea, by the way. I mean, it started off pretty good, but they're struggling now. Jesus goes to pray. Why? 
I think there are three reasons why Jesus goes into solitude. And I just want to offer three simple reasons why. Invitations for us. Why does Jesus go into solitude? Why are we to, to practice solitude? Number one, because solitude strips us from any identity that's not rooted in the love of God. Jesus had so much pressure. Everyone had an opinion about Jesus. Some loved him, some hated him. Some admired him, some wanted to crucify him. Every day, Jesus lived with the competing opinions that people had about his life. And so in solitude, what does Jesus do? He goes into solitude to listen to the voice of the Father, to be with the Father, to strip any identity that's not rooted in the love of God. And this is what God invites us into as well. It's so easy to root our identity in what people think about us and what we think about ourselves. Solitude positions us to hear the voice of the Father speaking over your life saying, you are my beloved daughter and you I'm well pleased. You are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. And solitude creates space to hear the deep voice of the Father spoken over us. And yet this is really hard. Because we wonder about our lives. We've built so much of our identity on what people think about us. In 2019, I had a four-month sabbatical. I got off of social media for four to five months. And I remember the first day on, off of social media, I thought to myself, is anyone thinking about me? <laughs> is anyone missing me? And the, the answer is no. The, no. And and I felt like God was saying, you've built so much of your identity on what people, on notifications and retweets and likes and all the rest. I'm calling you to live into a deeper reality than that. And yet it's so hard. Henry Nouwen says we, we panic when there's nothing or nobody left to distract us. When we have no project to finish, no friend to visit, no book to read, no television to watch, no record to play. And when we are left all alone by ourselves, we are brought so close to the revelation of our basic human aloneness and are so afraid of experiencing an all-pervasive sense of loneliness that we will do anything to get busy again and continue the game which makes us all believe that everything is fine after all. In solitude, we create space to hear the voice of God spoken over your life. But solitude also does something else. It, it trains us to abide in God, to live in God. You were made for union with God. You were made for communion with the living God. This is why I love in the Gospel of John, Jesus, in one passage, he talks about the word abide over and over again. He says, abide in me and I in you. Remain in me and I in you. And what you discover in the Gospel of John, is that word abide shows up multiple times. Not five, not 10, not 15, not 20, not 30, not 40, not 50, not 60. 63 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, abide, remain, stay with me. You were made for communion with God. And there's something when we abide with God in solitude, something that the Spirit of God can now do in us that we cannot do for ourselves. Dallas Willard once said that a good definition of grace is God doing in you and for you 
what you cannot do for yourself. That's grace. And solitude and prayer positions us to open ourselves up to grace. It reminds me every, every morning when I'm home, I, I, I make my wife a cup of tea. It's one of my things that I do. And she loves it, and I love doing it for her. And I've discovered over the years that there are at least two ways of making tea. We're going to get really deep here. Two ways <laughs> of making tea. The first way is to, to be a dipper, where you take the tea bag and you, you dip in, and you dip out, and you dip in, and you dip out. And when the tea is to your liking, if you want to get really sophisticated with it, you take the tea bag, you wrap it around the spoon, you press down, you discard the tea bag, you enjoy your tea. We're dippers. And when I think about the spiritual life, I know what it's like to be a dipper. We dip in church, we dip out of church. We dip in the Bible, we dip out of the Bible. We dip into prayer, we dip out of prayer. That's one way of relating to God as dippers. But there's another way of making tea and another way of relating to God, and that is to be a dweller. Where you take the tea bag and you just let it stay there. Amen, somebody. You just let it stay there. And right before your very eyes, the composition of the water begins to change. You know, when you're dipping in and dipping out, you're working your shoulder. You know what I'm saying? But when you allow the tea bag just to sit there, transformation happens right before your very eyes. I remember one day I was in Queens having breakfast with someone, a friend, and he was dipping in and dipping out and dipping in and dipping out. I said, brother, just let the tea bag sit there. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 because the tea gets too strong if I let it sit there. And as a preacher, I said, my, my, my. <laughs> he said, what happened? I said, you're giving me preaching material, brother. The tea gets strong, and, and when you allow yourself to dwell with God, God's presence gets strong. Amen. You start doing stuff that you could not do in your own strength. You start finding yourself courageous when you used to be afraid. You start finding yourself generous when you used to hold back. You start finding yourself kind when you used to be mean. You start finding yourself opening yourself up to the very life of God. And this is what I know about your life and my life. There's too much pain in this room and too much pain for those of you watching online to live a life without dwelling in God. There's too much disruption in your life, too much coming at you. You, you cannot survive and thrive without a life abiding in God. So solitude forms us to abide, to dwell, to be. And what do we do in solitude? We practice attentiveness to the presence of Jesus. I love one day Mother Teresa was interviewed and they said, Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say to God? That's a good question. She said, I don't say anything, I listen. And the person said, wow. Well, if you're listening, what does God say? And she said, well, God doesn't say anything, God listens. <laughs> and the guy was so confused, like some of you are right now. It's just like, what? And she said, there's no other way that I can explain what prayer is. Attentiveness to the presence of God. You know, when you, are, when you know someone really well, 
you have a greater capacity just to be with them without the need for words. And this is what Jesus invites us into, a life of abiding. But thirdly, what does solitude do? Solitude not just trains us in love uh, or teaches us how to abide, but it forms us to love. The fruit of solitude is not just you and Jesus getting some time. The fruit of solitude is love. The fruit of solitude is the, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of solitude is not just you getting goosebumps and feeling good about your relationship with God. The fruit of solitude is being with God for the sake of love. This is why when I'm with God in prayer, the end of my prayer is something like this. Lord, may I love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may I love my neighbor as myself. Because the primary fruit of being with God is love. And what the world desperately needs are people who have been with Jesus. What the world desperately needs are people who dwell in God. And so what's the invitation? There's two simple invitations. One is thinking about solitude with a capital S and thinking about it with a lowercase s. For some of you, I talked about my experience of six and seven hours with God. For some of you, I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to draw you into deeper communion. And maybe at some point in the next month, you need to say, I, think I need to spend two or three hours finding a space to be with God, finding a space to be with Scripture, to be with my journal, to journal what's going on in my heart, to not try to get anything out of it, but just to be with God. And for some of you, it's a lowercase s, lowercase solitude, where you're going to begin little by little with five minutes and saying, you know what, I, I, I know it's a busy work day, but I'm going to take a part of my lunch break in, and I'm just going to set my timer to five minutes and I'm going to be with God. But wherever we start, Jesus longs to dwell with you. And that is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is a story of a God who longs to dwell with humanity. The story of the gospel is a story of a God who loves this world with an everlasting love and wants to dwell with it. From Genesis to Revelation, we find the God who can't get enough of humanity. We find the God who can't get enough of you. With all of your hang-ups, with all of your inconsistencies, with all of your contradictions, with all of your ups and downs, God can't get enough of you. And God longs to be with you. This is a story from Genesis to Revelation. In the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and in solitude communes with them. He just wants to be with them in the cool of the day. I just want to walk with you and be with you and talk with you. And Adam and Eve said, it's not enough to be with God. We want to be God. And so they disobey. They say, my kingdom come, my will be done. Sin enters into the world. And aren't you glad that the Bible doesn't end with Genesis 3? The Bible does not end. With, the Bible continues to go on. And the Bible is the story of God longing to dwell with his people. God says, I know you're, you're, you just got liberated from Egypt and now you're in the wilderness. I long to dwell with you. And I'll be with you in a cloud by day and fire by night. Or and, and, and I'll be with you, not just in a cloud by day, fire by night. I'll, I'll be, let's, let's create a tabernacle. Let's create a temple. Let's create a place 
where I can dwell with my people. And over and over again, the people of God say, ah, you know what? We'd rather have other gods. Thank you. No, thank you. And over and over again, God says, I'm still going to come after you. I still want to dwell with you. I still want to be with you. God sends love notes from his prophets saying, come back to me. Turn to me. Let, let, let's, let's live in communion once again. And the people of God say, ah, I don't know. And then they say yes. And then they say no again. And God says, I long to dwell with you, but it's not enough to come in a cloud or be in a fire or be in a temple or be in a tabernacle. I, I want to get really close. And so in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwells among us. Jesus said, I can't get enough of you. I want to dwell with you. He dies for our sins. He's raised on the third day. He ascends to the Father and says, I just don't want to be next to you. I want to be in you. And so he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, to be with you. And the story of the Bible ends not with us ascending in disembodied ways to heaven, but with a fully embodied heaven coming down to earth to dwell with us. God longs to dwell with you. That's the story of the Bible. And solitude is our simple response to the grace of God. We don't practice solitude to earn spiritual points. We don't practice solitude to curry the favor of God. God has already been good to you in Jesus Christ. Solitude is our response in saying, Lord, you long to dwell with me. I want to dwell with you. And as we do, we will find our lives transformed. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For your faithful love for the ways you long to dwell with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to exercise this spiritual practice, exercise this muscle, not because this practice somehow makes us elite Christians, but because this practice opens us up to your life. And so, Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us in the way we should go. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. amen.